Good evening. I'm going to wait a few seconds while people enter the room and in the meantime, welcome you to this session. Good evening and welcome to the final presentation in the 2021-22 Jepson Leadership Forum, Moving People, the Perils and Promise of Nationalism. We planned this year's forum in 2020, seems so long ago, never suspecting just how timely the topic of global migration and asylum would be. During their forum presentation, scholars and experts have helped us explore how leaders and communities navigate the economic, social, and cultural transformation of a world with and without borders and walls. Before we begin tonight's presentation, I'd like to thank Jepson School professors, Peter Kaufman and Javier Hidalgo, the faculty members who spearheaded this year's series and suggested our lineup of speakers. Tonight, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jepson alumna, Maureen Usman, who will introduce our speaker. Maureen graduated from UR in 2020 with a double major in economics and leadership studies. At the University of Richmond, she was a member of both the Jepson School Student Government Association and our volunteer group, Jepson Corps. She also volunteered as a mentor in the Scholars Latino Initiative, a college access program founded and run by Dr. Kaufman for Spanish speaking immigrant teens. As an undergraduate, Maureen in interned with the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan in order to complete her research paper on the Afghan diaspora in Pakistan. Today, she is a Fulbright scholar in Kinmen, Taiwan, where she teaches English and studies Mandarin. In the fall, she plans to attend law school where she will focus on international human rights and immigration law. Thank you for joining us, Maureen. Thank you, Dean Peart. Um, Sila Ben-Habib is Senior Research Fellow and Adjunct Professor of Law at Columbia University, Affiliate Faculty in Columbia's Department of Philosophy, and a Senior Fellow at Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought. She is also the Eugene Meyer Professor of Political Science and Philosophy Emerita at Yale University, where she taught from 2001 to 2020. She is the former president of the Eastern Division of the American Philosophical Association and a current member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Ben Habib previously taught at the New School for Social Research and at Harvard University, where she was professor of government and chair of Harvard's program on social studies. She is the recipient of the Ernst Bloch Prize, the Leopold Lucas Prize, and the Meister Eckert Prize, one of Germany's most prestigious philosophical prizes. She received a Guggenheim Fellowship and has served as research affiliate and senior scholar in many institutions in both the United States and Europe. A prolific author, her work has been translated into German, Spanish, French, Italian, Turkish, Swedish, Russian, Serbo-Croatian, Hebrew, Polish, Japanese, and Chinese. She has edited and co-edited volumes on topics including democracy and difference, the rights of migrant women and children, the communicative ethics controversy, and Hannah Arendt. In 2018, Princeton University Press published her most recent book, 
Exile, Statelessness, and Migration, Playing Chess with History from Hannah Arendt to Isaiah Berlin. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Sila Ben-Habib to the Jepson Leadership Forum. Thank you very much, Maureen, for this kind introduction. And thank you to the Jepson Leadership uh, Forum at the University of Virginia at Richmond and uh, all who have made this program possible. As Dean uh, Peart mentioned, uh, this program was initiated before the pandemic in 2020. And I want to thank also Shannon Best for her patience through many permutations and invitations. And I regret that I cannot be with you in person uh, this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues and uh, students, um, the eyes of the world in the last couple of weeks have been glued to television screens, smartphones, social media networks, following the battle for the occupation of Ukraine by Russian troops. And there is indeed widespread sense that we are at the beginning of a new era, although of course we don't know which. Until the start of what turns out to be the biggest battle on the European continent of the last 80 years, the Ukraine battle, many had been predicting the death or the end of democracies. In a much discussed book, Harvard political scientists Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky, in fact, in the book of the same title, wrote about the death of democracies the very well-known British political philosopher, David Runciman, prophesied the end of democracy. Yet, as we look at the will of the Ukrainian people to determine their own future and to be able to join the institutions that they choose, we realize that despite the sense of gloom and doom that pervades in many intellectual circles in the West, the wish of many people in today's world to work, to live in democracies has not uh, diminished. Among the many factors that are held responsible for the crisis of democratic institutions, such as the dysfunction of representation, growing economic and class inequalities, fragmentation of our public sphere, intensifying conflict over religious and cultural differences, there is one domain, namely transnational migrations, which your forum has uh, wisely chosen to address. By transnational migrations, and here I'll share my screen uh, with you, I mean the movement of people across borders. Uh, be it for the purposes of uh, migration, uh, for jobs, education, commerce, or uh, as refugees, asylum seekers, or the uh, undocumented. In the last three weeks, the Ukrainian war has produced <clears throat> three and a half million refugees spread throughout Europe. But in 2015, the absorption of one and a half million Syrian refugees 
fleeing the civil war in that country has produced a populist backlash throughout Europe and in Germany in particular. Today, the rise of right-wing populist movements opposed to migrants and refugees is widespread in Italy, the Netherlands, Hungary, Austria, Norway, the UK, and of course, under the Trump administration, a form of xenophobic nationalism had raised its ugly head in the United States as well. In an age when the movement of everything across borders, from capital to fashion, from information to news, from germs to money has intensified, human mobility continues to be criminalized. The refugee, particularly from third world countries, such as Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, or from the so-called third world countries, Northern Triangle countries of Latin America, is treated not only as an alien body, but as an enemy to be interned in detention camps and held in deportation sites. And here are some pictures that you are all familiar with. Uh, I will come back to the Aquarius. This is the so-called uh, migrant you know, or refugee caravan uh, approaching the uh, southern border of the US. And this is a picture of the separation of parents, mothers, and children in the US uh, border. The United States long considered a country of immigrants and proud of offering refuge to the so-called huddled masses has intensified the othering and criminalization of migrants as well as refugees through the so-called migration protocol, protection protocols and the application of Title 42. I will argue as I progress in my lecture that there is firm evidence that recent US actions and policies along the US-Mexico border violate the principle of non-refoulement of the 1951 Geneva Convention, which means not rendering a refugee to the country where her life and her liberty are in danger. And this principle has been incorporated into US law through the 1951 Geneva Convention, part of the Immigration and Nationality uh, Act. But before we get to that discussion, let me give you some facts and figures. Who are refugees in international law? What do we mean by transnational? Uh, movement. Now, in international law and organizations, the general term that covers the movement of people in their country or across border is displacement. Today, the displaced population of the world is at its highest level since World War II, with, according to the uh, UN HCR figures of this summer, 82.4, and that is the United Commission for Refugees. But of course, with just recent developments in the Ukraine of the last month, this figure of 82.4 is most likely 
million. So there are 85 million uh, displaced persons in the world, but who are they? In international law, only those who cross internationally recognized borders are recognized as refugees. So the term refugee is a very specific uh, terminology. The UNHCR classifies in general 48 million people as internally displaced. That is 48 million people move in their own country from one region to another, from one city to another. Among those 26.4 are refugees. Uh, to make this somewhat clearer for the lay person, the Rohingya, for example, uh, in um, Myanmar or formerly Burma are internally displaced persons only those who cross the border to neighboring Bangladesh are referred to as refugees. Now, among the refugees, there is a group of five and a half million people of Palestinians who stand under the United Nations Relief Work Agency. 4.1 million people are designated specifically as asylum seekers. These are people who have made claims to receive asylum in other countries that they have entered. And recent history has now produced before the, before the um, Ukrainians 3.9 million displaced Venezuelans, and they are recognized as a separate category because the political situation in Venezuela has still not been, not been resol resolved. I know these categories are confusing, but we need, to, we need to have a sense of them in order to understand what international organizations and nations are doing to help um, the general category of what we refer to as migrants and refugees. Now, I want to make one more point, and this is a little bit more number crunching. Why has the issue of transnational movements, not only the refugee crisis, be it Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Africa, Ukraine, why is it that the transnational movement of people in general is creating such backlash and giving rise to such ugly reactions? The numbers tell us something very interesting. Um, in 1910, only 33 million individuals a century ago, more than a century ago, lived in other countries as migrants. By 2015, a century later, the number stood 200 and, at 248 million. This means that there was an eightfold increase in individuals who lived in countries in which they were not born within a century. Now, there has been another increase, and this I think is important. Uh, the number of international migrants has continued to grow, reaching 81.5 million in, 20, in 2020. That is a 40 million growth in five years since 2015. 
Now, to sum up these figures for you, it is not the absolute number of migrants that merit attention. The world, the whole world is not moving. Most people don't just pack up and leave. Only 3.6% of the world's total population of seven and a half billion people are migrants. But what is going on is that there is an intensification and acceleration of migratory movements in the last uh, decades. And this is not just uh, refugees, but in general, people moving for commerce, education, personal reasons, whatever. So what has happened is that between 2000 and 2020, whereas the world population has increased by 16%, the world migrant population has increased by more than 50% from 173 million to 281 million. I think this is what is generating a kind of um, sense of sense of crisis. Migrations, whether they're undertaken by economic migrants or by refugees are however now global phenomena, challenging many societies in many parts of the world. Migrations are global, regional and local. They flow into each other and they generate complex patterns of interdependence among human communities with pull and push factors. Migratory movements generate symbolic identity crises, both for the receiving countries and for the moving groups of individuals. Uh, the deceased Polish sociologist Zygmunt Bauman writes of liquid modernity in our times, a time when words, images, money, microbes, fashion can travel with great intensity and speed and cause uh, instability in our lives. In that sense, the migrant and the refugee become the visible proof or the visible symbol of a kind of instability in all uh, in our modern condition. Uh, but nevertheless, the movement of persons across borders is a fundamental human right. And although only 3.4% of the world's population or 3.6% of the world's population moves, the right to do so is one of the fundamental human rights guaranteed by both the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, very briefly, Article 13 of the UDHR says everyone has the right of freedom of movement and residence within the borders of each state. And the second clause says everyone has the right to leave any country, including his own, and to return to his country. This is repeated in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, Article 12, as the right to leave and to re-enter one's country. Now, for the purposes of immigration uh, concerning refugee and asylum, Article 14 is the most important, which says everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. Uh, the only exception to this is the right may not be invoked in the case of prosecutions arising from non-political crimes or from acts contrary to the purposes 
and principles of the United Nations. In other words, if you are an ordinary criminal, you can't just plead asylum. And if you are a war criminal, uh, as defined uh, by the principles of international law, you cannot escape by simply pleading asylum. Article 15 says everyone has a right to nationality and no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his or her nationality. And again, this is repeated in International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. Every child has the right to require a nationality, which itself is a complex proposition in view of the fact that there are 10 million still undocumented people in our world today. That is people without a nationality. The most important legal document in the post-war period governing the right of asylum is the 1951 Geneva Convention on the status of refugees. And I want to briefly talk about this because it is often neglected that the Geneva Convention is part of US law. And this is very important for us to take into account. The Geneva Convention is grounded in Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it entered into force on the 22nd of April, 1954. And since then, it has been subject to only one amendment in the form of a 1967 protocol, which lifted the geographic and temporal limits of the 1951 convention. What is the convention definition of a refugee? The convention says, a refugee is a person who, as a result of events occurring before January 1st, 1951, this has been eliminated, okay? This was the 1967 protocol. So today, a refugee is a person who, owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality and is unable or owing to such fear is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. And then there is a technical clause about whether this is your country of nationality or your habitual country of residence, that's not very important. What I want to call your attention to is the 1951 convention definition of refugee on the basis of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of, of a particular social group or political opinion. Uh, these categories have been very contested. Now, today, this is ratified by 149 states out of 195, but still there are major, major uh, gaps in the Refugee Convention because Lebanon, Pakistan, Jordan, and India, for example, have not signed the convention for various reasons. And Turkey, which is one of the largest refugee recipient countries today with 3.7 million people 
has signed the con convention, but it has reformulated its own protocol. Now, one more point before I talk about the United States and just give me a second and don't read what is on the, on the screen. Maybe I will just go back not to confuse you uh, for a second. One final observation. The largest refugee receiving countries in the world today are not in the West, although again, the Ukrainian war is going to change the situation. The largest refugee receiving countries are Turkey with 3.7 million Syrian refugees, Pakistan with 1.4 million, Uganda with 1.2 million, Lebanon, Iran, all with you know over 900 million people and Germany is the only European country was the only European country until Poland started taking in Ukrainian refugees with 1.1 million refugees. What about the United States then? As has been noted by many scholars of international law, Although the United States was at the forefront of many human rights and conventions in the post-World War II period, its own compliance with these conventions has been characterized as American exemptionalism, American exceptionalism morphing into American exemptionalism. This is Michael Ignatieff's word. The United States was a high contracting party to the Geneva Convention. In fact, international lawyers from the United States played a major role in the uh, formulation of the convention. But it is only in uh, 1968 that the United States uh, acceded uh, to the convention protocol. And it was not until 1980 that legislation was passed. This is because according to the US constitution, every international treaty <clears throat> must be ratified by two thirds majority in the Senate. And even the 1951 convention was a hard, uh, steep climb to achieve ratification. After the Vietnam debacle, Congress also passed the Refugee Act of 1980, which established procedures for admitting refugees and handling asylum, asylum applications. Now, following the attacks of September 11th, 2001, uh, the entire US immigration administration and bureaucracy has changed. And many of you may be familiar with this, but a radical change occurred, which has been described by many legal scholars as crim migration. That is the merging of migration law and criminal law to give rise to, to crim migration. Uh, Judith Resnick from the Yale Law School notes, for example, quote, <clears throat> in the years between 2008 and 2015, 
immigration prosecutions have represented more than half of the annual federal caseload, more than 50% of the annual federal caseload was dealing with immigration persecutions. In view of the very large number of migrants from Central America traveling to the United States in 2018, uh, the Trump administration introduced the so-called migration protection protocols. They were subsequently revoked and stopped by a federal appeals court judge and then they were reinstituted and the Biden administration was committed to abolishing the MPPs, Migration Protection Protocols, but that was stopped by a federal court in Texas. What are these exactly? Uh, this migration pro protection protocols mean that those who have reached the US by land through the US-Mexico border have to get a number before their asylum intake interview. Now, is this in accordance with the US's international obligations, which have been incorporated into US law? And here I want to talk about this nonprofit organization al otro lado that has been pursuing a class action suit against the officials of the US Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border uh, Protection. This case has been filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights, Southern Poverty Law Center and Immigration Immigration and American Immigration Center. It's gone back and forth. It was first filed in 2017. It was refiled in 2018. It's still in the uh, courts. The important point here is that the plaintiffs allege that the Customs and Border Protection and the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, are systematically violating US and international law by denying individuals even the opportunity to seek asylum. That the US government is consistently turning away individuals facing persecution, forcing them to return to countries where they face grave violence and risk of death. So the briefs you know, and evidence collected by these groups suggest that <clears throat> the waiting lists enjoin asylum seekers to return to Mexico and to get a number for their interview. Now, uh, this is not part of the convention. This is not part of the United Nations High Commissioner reading of what is appropriate to do as an interpretation of the convention. This is basically an administrative, it was an administrative invention of the Trump administration, which has not been internationally contested, but as you can see, domestic groups are contesting, uh, contesting it. And as uh, many of you I'm sure have read in newspapers, the 
really horrible aspect of the migration protection protocols is that these individuals who are rendered back to Mexico are in increased danger of being uh, attacked by people who are really preying on them uh, for money, uh, for sexual and other favors. And it is just an absolutely disastrous situation on the other side, on the other side of the, of the border. I don't have time in this lecture to go into the question of the separation of parents and children or the treatment of the unaccompanied minors, so-called unaccompanied minor, minors uh, in the US-Mexico border. But suffice it to say that in addition to the migration protection protocols, Title 42 was introduced with the emergence of COVID and Title 42 gave the both Trump and Biden administrations the prerogative the administration claimed to deny access to US territory for migrants on the grounds of collective security, i.e. health risks. But not only were migrants not subject to any kind of COVID tests, some um, doctor groups, um, indigenous doctor groups who wanted to go to the southern border uh, to um, uh, help migrants uh, test them, uh, give them medical advice, were denied, were denied access. How did we get here? How did we get here? Do liberal democracies have the moral, political, and intellectual resources to deal with this situation? Or must they succumb to the politics of fear and ressentiment, resentment? The political philosopher Judith Clark, in her famous essay, The Liberalism of Fear of 1989, wrote that the task of liberal societies was not only to render justice, but also to forbid cruelty. Cruelty inflicts not only physical harm and torture, but subject its victims to humiliation and indignity. Cruelty is spreading in liberal democracies at the cost of those who are most vulnerable, whether within or without borders. How can the politics of cruelty be avoided? How can liberal democracies respect their commitments to human dignity and solidarity while respecting the international human rights of migrants and refugees. From the standpoint of political theory, now if I may turn to political philosophy, my field from uh, legal argumentation, the justification of the boundaries of the demos, the boundaries of the people, that is defining who counts as a member while excluding others as three-fifths persons, as was done with Black slaves in the American Constitution until after the Civil War, or counting others as strangers, aliens, undocumented. 
How do we do this? This is one of the most vexing and difficult problems in liberal democratic theory. According to a classical formulation by the theorist Frederick Whelan, the boundary problem is one matter of collective decision that cannot be decided democratically. In other words, at any one point, the people decide about who constitutes the people. And so there is a kind of circularity here. Democracy cannot be brought to bear logically on the matter of the group itself, because the group deciding is always, is always constitute. But how far does the privilege of the democratic people to this decide upon the rules of membership extend? Can democratic people simply block entry to others, whether migrants or refugees? Moving towards a conclusion, I'm going to distinguish among three broad answers that have been given to this question in contemporary political thought. I will define the first as liberal nationalism. I will define the second as liberal internationalism. And I will describe the third position as cosmopolitan interdependence. Liberal nationalists, which is, I think, the common sense standpoint of um, certainly the current administration and of many people of goodwill, uh, claim that without well-protected borders, there can be no democratic self-governance. There must be a centralized agent of some kind that takes responsibility for protecting a country's natural and material assets, and thus ensures the continuity of its public culture and domestic values. Immigrations are permitted, but the regulation of the quantity and quality of immigration remains sovereign, sovereign uh, privileges. Although liberal nationalists consider it desirable that their legislatures should act in accordance with international law, what counts in the first place, they say, is our law, our precedents, and our values. And um, of course, there are extreme versions of liberal nationalism, uh, which are ethno-nationalist that disregard the international obligations of, let's say, the United States and put the value on the nationalism rather than the liberalism. Now, liberal internationalists um, argue that it is wrong to think of the capacity of the people to define itself simply as a prerogative that can be wielded against others. They point out that states exist within regimes of sovereignty that change over time. And the model of absolute jurisdiction of central authority over all that is living and all that is dead in its territory is a myth of the past. States must cooperate with one another in economics, in finance, in communication, in the protection of the world, climate, and of course, in security and in preventing atomic 
um, war. And liberal internationalists point out that state sovereignty is and should be limited by international law and by institutions such as the United Nations Charter, the UDHR, and other human rights um, agreements. And it enjoins liberal internationalists ask states to respect such obligations. And they argue that respecting such obligations are beneficial economically because international prosperity requires respecting the rules of the game. And as we see now in the current crisis, again, between Russia and the Ukraine, the whole liberal internationalist perspective of using economic sanctions also to constrain and oblige states to obey international law, one of the first principles of which is no aggressive war. There is no right to go to war against another country unless you have been attacked first and prove that that is a war of self-defense. Cosmopolitan interdependence. The cosmopolitan position pushes liberal internationalists beyond the perspective of the state. Because the state, I would argue, privileges an ontology of containment. It's always a question of how do we contain human movement. Cosmopolitanism proceeds from the premise that human mobility is a deep-seated drive of the human species. There has been no period in history where the human species has not moved, and that the regulation of human mobility through national borders is quite recent in human history. But as some of you raised this question, this is not a plea for a world without borders. Because I agree that democracies require jurisdictional boundaries. In that sense, liberal nationalists are right. We must know in whose name the law is being enacted and how we can request accountability from those who enacted. But jurisdictional boundaries are not coterminous with militarily armed and violently guarded border regimes. If we look above and below the state, we see that there are ways of defining the interdependency of human beings through municipalities, city government, regions, regional cooperation, and what are called borderlands, borderlands. Cosmopolitans insist that migratory uh, movements occur because of such pull and push uh, factors. And it enjoins us to investigate and analyze much prior to the migrant or refugee arriving at the door, how our own actions and politics have contributed to such uh, movements. So the cosmopolitan perspective is not exclusive, but inclusive. It is not unitary, but pluralists. It accepts the value 
as well as the necessity of the jurisdiction for domestic self-determination. It also accepts with liberal internationalists that we have to consider state regimes in, under increased cooperations of international law and rules for shared uh, governance. And as recent in the events in our world have made uh, abundantly uh, clear, uh, we need a complex and integrated vision and uh, perspective of interdependence and cooperation to be able to face uh, the challenges of this new century that is only two decades old, but which certainly has posed enormously difficult questions for us already. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Ben-Habib, for that great lecture. Um, so we can move into the questions portion of the event. Um, so for our first question, um, could you please distinguish between your advocacy of porous borders and the case some other scholars and activists make for open borders, um, both on economic and humanitarian grounds? Do open borders make sense? Uh, I'm, I'm glad that this question um, was, uh, was raised. Um, um, uh, what is the distinction between porous borders and, and open uh, borders? Uh, porous borders are borders uh, through which movement on both sides can take place. Uh, those within a country can leave that country and some who are on the outside who want to enter are uh, permitted uh, to enter. Porous borders are also open <laughs> because they permit movement on both sides. But when one is talking about open borders in contemporary discussions, you know, be it in political philosophy, be it, you know, in other spheres, what people are talking about is really a world with without borders. Uh, because as I said, open does not mean uh, non-porous. A world without borders is a moral ideal. It's a moral ideal in the sense that it projects the ideal of a community of humanity, a, a solidaristic vision of us as, as human beings. I think it is important morally to hold on to that ideal, but at the same time, we have to recognize a certain value in people's self-determination of their own languages, of their own cultures, and of their own histories. So a world without borders uh, should not mean a world in which we are all the same. We, it would mean a world of equality and a world of solidarity, but not a world of sameness, if I can make that distinction, because human plurality and the diversity of human lives and cultures and traditions is something that we should cherish. And it's certainly something uh, that I cherish. So I think 
the, the question then is to distinguish between a moral ideal of a kind of human family of solidarity and equality on the one hand, and what we have right now is this world of states that have always been in an antagonistic as well as cooperative relation to one another. Thank you. And following on that same vein of the sanctity of borders, um, what do you think the Russia-Ukraine war teaches us about nationalism and the supposed sanctity of borders? Yes. <laughs> I uh, think that's something um, very, very um, unexpected is also at stake in, in this. Let me go, let me go into a little bit of depth about um, President Putin's ideology. Uh, President Putin believes in something that he calls the Russian mirror, the great Russian people. And the Russian people across exist for him across borders. It exists across state borders. He defines it in terms of linguistic affinity, religious affinity, cultural, and ethno-national affinity. And he wants to recreate and that was his speech you know, for the occupation of Ukraine. He wants to recreate this domain. Uh, this is a very dangerous ideal and I'm not going to go into detail here, but it is not unrelated to the Nazi fascist ideology of creating a sphere of influence for the Germanic peoples. At its core, uh, this is an expansionist and um, authoritarian ideology. And so all of a sudden, what's happened is that the rules according to which the international society of states was trying to live, good or bad, I mean, there is a lot of issue, you know, was the US invasion of Iraq justified? You know, did it not violate the UN charter in the same way? I actually believe that it didn't, although we went to war in Iraq on the basis of a lie, namely the presence of weapons of mass destruction, okay? But uh, what we are facing right now is a different normative system of international relations. And all of a sudden, one of the major superpowers in the world is re, you know, reshuffling the cards, if you wish, and creating a whole new perspective on the basis of which it's going to act. I mean, this is this is quite stunning, uh, and and obviously, uh, you know, the people of the Ukraine are saying, "You don't tell us who we are." who we are a part of, you don't tell us how we are going to define our, our future. Uh, but it is uh, quite a challenge to the 1945, to the post-1945 
international international order. Yes, I think it's quite timely that you're, you're giving this lecture right now with everything that is happening. Um, and I know that you touched on in your lecture um, the backlash from host countries and the othering that occurs when people come into their country. Um, so how do you think that the fears and resentments of persons in host countries can be addressed selectively to accommodate uh, refugees' attachments to the cultures they left behind in their home countries? I think this question is asking um, what we can do for hosts as well as what we can do for the refugees, for the refugees themselves. Um, I am a great fan of something that's been developed most recently and most actively in Canada, where um, Canadian families organized around some civil society groups have practiced the uh, adopt a refugee policy. Uh, this uh, is, uh, I think, extremely helpful in um, de-escalating the antagonism and the sense of hostility that can exist between groups. Let's face it, some difficulties, some some differences in human practices are difficult to translate and are difficult to understand among groups unless there is communication and, and conversation. And um, we have to you know, encourage uh, this kind of person-to-person, group-to-group, family-to-family. So this does not mean that governments I have no responsibility, but uh, focusing the whole uh, the whole governance of refugee policy on the states and governmental agencies is not producing good results. In uh, Western Massachusetts, where we also um, live during the summers, there is now a program for the re receiving of uh, Afghani refugees. And um, uh, there hardly are any Muslim people in Western Massachusetts in the town of Pittsfield. But a group of my neighbors that I'm very proud of have organized to help the Afghani refugees get adjusted in every way from getting uh, driver's licenses to putting their children to school Etc. And they're learning, and they're learning from each uh, from each other. Again, um, these are some some very basic things about absorption and um, acclimatization in a new country. But the fact that they are basic does not mean that they are irrelevant. We have to get away from this criminalization of the migrant policy that has also become so widespread in this country. It is, it is awful. It is against international law, and I believe it is against national law, and it does not help. So I think we should start saying, adopt a refugee. We should all do that. Thank you for that response. Um, I think we have time for one last question. Um, 
So for our last question, um, could you speak on the public figures, past or present, whom you admire for grappling creatively with all of the issues that you've raised today um, in ways that respect all parties? You know, I think I should mention, I should mention Madeleine Albright died yesterday. I'm sure many of you, you know, have heard about this. I think it was very touching. I said to myself, isn't it interesting? And isn't it, you know, one of these strange coincidences in human history when you believe, you know, Fortuna has the Machiavelli might call that. A woman who has fought so much to make sure that there would be no war on the European continent. It's sort of a sad disjunction. I, I sort of thought maybe she died of a heartbreak to see what was happening. Uh, I admire her greatly, but I wanted to mention, I wanted to mention her passing away and, you know, honor her, her efforts as well. Well, thank you so much for a very provocative talk this evening. Um, Sandra appeared again. I'd like to just spend, take a couple of minutes to thank uh, Professor Benabib, Maureen Usman, uh, and all of our participants, our audience for sharing your evening with us this, uh, today. Uh, as well, I'd like to thank uh, Megan Dooley and our colleagues in uh, the University of Richmond's Alumni Relations. They've been wonderful partners uh, as we've moved to remote events this year. And then finally, I'd like to take just a few seconds to say that the faculty are thinking about the Jepson Leadership Forum for next year. Uh, and I can let you know that the topic that we've chosen uh, at least as a preliminary uh, title, is uh, uh, Leadership Failures. So stay tuned for next year. I'm sure we'll have many uh, very wonderful events, and I look forward to seeing you uh, at those in person uh, next year. So thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs>